You're listening to Tabletop and Beyond, Guild 9 Gaming Podcast, covering board games to war games and beyond. Hey everybody, welcome back to Tabletop and Beyond. I am your host Justin, and we're here again with our full team with Dan and Jason. Hey everybody. Greetings, Earthlings. What did that just remind me of? Oh, uh, no, no. Uh, I, I'll talk about something else. Okay, sorry. Well, you totally threw me off, Dan. That's okay. my goal in life. It's all good. It's all good. All right, so we are back. Uh, today we are going to talk about, um, well, we're going to give you a little bit of a primer into skirmish games, what they are, what they do, what's cool about them, what's not so cool about them. We're just going to talk about them generally. Uh, but first, let's get into the Geek Week. Dan, kick us off. Well, uh, a lot of just updates from last time. Um, all my little Star Wars minis started showing up because I'm replacing... Uh, I, for the Star Wars The Outer Rim, I have most of the pieces, m- most of the 3D models from Wizards of the Coast when they had the Star Wars license. But I've been on eBay, picked up IG-88 and Dengar and Lando and just and waiting for uh, a handful more. So I'm excited to play that game with minis and not with little paper cutouts. Now, are these pre-painted? Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Pre-painted. <laughs> Just had to check because I know that uh, uh, painting isn't really your your thing. I tried. Every time I get out my uh, Battle Stations minis that I painted, everybody looks at them and goes, ah, uh, good job, Dan. <laughs> It's like there's this there's this weird weird awkward pause when they look at when everyone inspects my paint job. I'm like, shut up, man! Not everybody can paint minis. Shut up, man! I did realize. I, th- I thought you just used Star Trek minis. I I I added Star Trek minis. Yeah. Did you I paint those? Some. No, no, no. Those See, I commented on the Star Trek minis. Like Spock looks like he's in a constant state of shock. <laughs> Like, his eyes are, like, huge wide, and they're, like, two little, like, black dots in the middle of it. So it looks like he's been eternally surprised. So those were WizKids Hero Clicks. They are the wrong scale, but who cares? And yeah, it doesn't I, matter. I popped off the Hero Clicks base, and I uh, painted and glued them on to Scrabble, Scrabble pieces. Oh, oh, I remember that. That was those, a good idea. Those are the perfect size. And guess what? Because in Battle Stations, you have this little cup um, that goes around the base of your mini that indicates what class you are, whether you're a pilot or an engineer or security or whatever. And a Scrabble piece fits perfectly in those little cups. Oh, nice. So it was just pure kismet that I had some. And you can buy Scrabble pieces at craft stores. Most people, You don't have to like destroy your great game of Scrabble. You can just go buy them for like 99 cents in a bag. Um, and they are a lot of fun, uh, a lot of fun. So um, then my other thing, uh, getting back to making stuff, is I made a ton of progress on my game table. It's standing on six legs right now. It's an eight-legged table. Um, I just need to finish up, and I'll be done with phase one. I am I am a couple of legs and a couple of support pieces away from phase one, and uh, this is a four-phase thing. And I was talking to one of our pals, Drew, um, about how I'm going to do the cup holders and, and different add-ons and stuff. He's like, just just do a French cleat. So I like burned hours on YouTube learning about French cleats. So I solved two problems. I could this... see, by the way, I could mm-hmm. see how Googling French cleat would go terribly wrong if you're not careful. On YouTube, it's that is a... I'm doing it right that, now. That is a <laughs> normal thing. It is a woodworking thing. Okay. Just, just don't... Don't mess with the vowels and the word cleat, and you're fine. 
Which is hard when you're speaking French, not to mince with the vowels. And it's YouTube, so YouTube, you know, it's YouTube. So there's Well, I lot... spelled it wrong, but Google corrected me appropriately, so yeah. we're good. We're Watch safe. The... <laughs> you spelled it wrong on purpose. No, oh, I uh... didn't. Cleet, I put C-L-E-E-T. Oh, jeez. So anyway, um, now that I'm putting the game table together, it does feel maybe just a little on the small side. But I've, I've designed a system that I think will work that I can um, extend out every seat with a small, <coughs> excuse me, with a small writing desk if we want to have a bigger group. If we really want eight people to sit around this table and do some hardcore long-term RPGing, there'll, there'll mm-hmm. be an optional writing desk. You could you could just drop in and click it into place. And uh, and, and I, you can attach, attach a cup holder there and or a, a dice roller thing, so... So your cup holder is going to attach um, like aftermarket, like onto the side, like an accessory. Yeah, I've got to do some fashioning. Basically, it'll be made out of wood, and the cup holder will fall into a hole. Mm. Uh, it'll be a plastic cup holder, or it'll be if if you have a a cup that is at an angle where the the mouth is wider than the hole, it'll just fit in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the stabilization to drop it into the the uh, the side of the table. We'll be using French cleat, but it'll also have a, a, a an extra st- stabilization brace, so people don't uh, you know bump it and have their cup go flying or their small writing table go flying. So cool. So, so now I figured out phase five. I had four four phases planned. <laughs> now I have phase five accessories. Ex- oh, here's another thing about building a game table. That I didn't realize when I started this. Usually, when I'm doing these like home improvement projects, they drag on for days or whatever, and I'm outside and I'm sweaty and I'm dirty and it's you know. And usually, I get a lot of positive reinforcement from my spouse about what a great job I'm doing, how useful it is, and this is going to be great when it's all done. Building a game table, not so much. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's like uh, it's like I'm out in the garage gaming, except I'm not. Yeah, oh. what's this going to be used for? Yeah. Oh, this oh, okay. is something you're building for yourself and you're spending a lot of money and time doing it? Okay. This is, this is your thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So just just a word to the wise. Just uh, Anyway, it's still a good project. Um, and uh, it, now it looks like a table. I posted one of those photos on Discord. So. Um, yeah, it does look good. By tomorrow, I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it. You're looking right at it. Tomorrow it'll have all eight legs on it, and um, then I can uh, start phase two. That's Very my cool. geek week. That's awesome. Jason, what'd you get? Boy, I think I'm going to do French cleats too. That looks really easy. I don't even know what this is. Anyway, You'll have to Google it, but be careful. be careful. Exactly. No, okay. Uh, <laughs> so on this, on this, I'll just keep this thread going. So I did finish um, my gamer coffee table. So that's how I tricked it, right? I said, I'm going to build a gaming table. But, honey, it's also going to be a coffee table that goes in our living room, and it'll look really nice. And she's like, oh, yeah, we need a coffee table in there. So Get her on board. Get her on yeah, board. That's how I kind of found that 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 uh, Venn diagram there of my hobbies and what she needs in there. But uh, so I I finished the top. Uh, it looks good. Um, now going to be on to staining. Uh, but I did stain the console table that I built for her. Remember, I had to do the, I had these gates. That would allow that kind of were like okay. In order for you to build a gaming table, you have to show that you can do this. And so I built her this <laughs> this really good console table that she really liked. I like it. Um, and we stained it together this weekend. 
Oh, and man, nice. I'm like, you know what the fun part of woodworking is? Doing the wood. <laughs> not, doing the, not, not doing the stain. Yes. Sanding oh. is worse than stain. Sanding is worse. Sanding oh. is worse. I the hate san- sanding. I, I didn't mind the sanding because I put on, you know, maybe, and I would have liked staining too if I did it that way, but I put on like headphones and I was listening to like, you know, some sci-fi audiobooks when I was stand- sanding, but down in the, down because you know, the staining, it's got to be down in like, they, they recommend like 50% humidity and like 70 degrees. And so we, we actually just put it down in our basement uh, in our unfinished room there, one of the rooms we had GuildCon in and, and stained it. And it looks gorgeous, um, but it's just, it was just a long process to do. Uh, but anyways, that's done, um, and so that's progress. Um, I bought me some sisters, so I'm gonna the sisters of battle. Talked about those last week, so I got a big box of them, and I'm gonna do some grim dark painting style on them. So I'm gonna learn how to use uh, oil-based paints and uh, the removal techniques versus um, uh, some of the other things we've done with I some of the other ones. I believe they call it a reductive acrylic. technique. Yeah, reductive technique versus. Uh, thank you, Justin. You You're can, welcome. Uh, now have uh, fifty kudos for you. No, so, ten, <laughs> ten, ten, ten DKPs for you. Dragon kill. Thank points. you, thank you. Um, if you're talking kudos, you know that's they're only a couple inches long. You can eat about six, <laughs> six of right. them in a Remember study. those? Uh, yeah, they weren't very good. They weren't very good. Do they still make kudos? Oh yeah, they yeah, do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mom used to get them for me for my lunches, and I'd always be like in high school, and it yeah, like, what is this, like kudos. the size of my pinky? And I'm like, this is garbage. Yeah, you know? right. But you, you ate it anyway. I know you, you ate, ate them anyways. Anyway. Like, I did. Yeah, I was like, chocolate on it. Make our lunch. All right, we'll just throw four or five of these in the bag. But uh, <laughs> it's like, doesn't that snack? <laughs> right. Uh, anyways, a little distracted there. So, yeah, we're going to be doing a reductive technique uh, with oils uh, versus kind of what I did with all of my Flesh Eater Quartz Army, even my Ogre Army, which was, you know, the acrylic um, uh, the acrylic technique, uh, kind of edge highlighting and that kind of stuff. I'm interested. I'm excited to try something new uh, with it. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. Jay, Last I, don't, thing that, I don't see why what? you're being so reductive. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think I said that to you once on, on Discord. <laughs> you did. You did. I had to Google it and think, what does that mean in this context? <laughs> what does that mean in this context? That's all I can uh, think about while you were talking about reductive painting. I'm like, oh, that one time I offended Jay on Discord. Oh, you didn't offend me. I tried. You tried. It's hard to offend it's me. Hard, yeah. You'll find a way. So I was thinking that um, I mean one of the, one of the well-known hobbyists that uses and has sort of uh, codified this uh, yeah. the enamels mm-hmm. and 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 uh, and oil painting using you know mineral spirits to uh, do the reductive techniques um, and the grim dark stuff is uh, Zach Cascagoon. Mm-hmm. and I mean he's got some great tutorial videos out there and his stuff is it looks just absolutely amazing. I wonder if we could get him on the show one time. It'd be, it, I Ooh, think it'd that'd be, be cool. cool. To, wouldn't it be cool to talk to him? Yeah. Maybe right. he'd give us a discount on his... Uh... Yeah. Well, he doesn't own AK Interactive stuff. No, 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 no. Not AK Interactive. Discount on his library. Oh, it's well, like uh, It's like yeah. $11 a month. If you're a serious painter, it's probably a good... Uh, you know, you're going to pay more than that for painting classes to get access it's, to his it's library. It's true. And he... I mean, I would say this, though. Um, a lot of his videos, I and I looked, like I would say 75% of his videos are on YouTube for Well, free. no, but that's the thing. Um, they're all like parts. Like part three of four is on YouTube. Okay, all right, fair enough. So that's how he does it, yeah. And like um, another thing is you'll see in a lot of his videos, he'll show you, he'll he'll, sh- he'll take one model and he'll paint it up. And then halfway in, you'll see like, 
this is another model I did where I did this technique on it. You can see it. And yeah. you're like, oh, oh, I like that one. Well, you can only get that one behind the paywall. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good point. Yeah, that's a I, good point. And honestly, eleven dollars a month. Um, I mean, that's a typical Patreon. Yeah. Well, you know. wait, really? I would say yeah. four ninety nine a month is a typical Patreon. Well, I'm with Jay on that. I'm with Jay on that. Okay, that's fine. Well, well, let me put it this way: for a podcast. Patreon, Patreon for that quality of stuff. So you ah. can. Okay. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So. Here's the thing. It's not a bad deal if you're like, man, I really want to figure this out, and you're just going to dedicate a month to it. Dude, ten ninety nine. You pay a month. You're gonna. You could watch probably every video that's in his library in a single month. Yeah. And you know, then you've helped the guy out for a month. You know, you've learned a little something. And if you feel like going on, you can. If you if you like stopping it, yeah, you can stop it. So. Yeah. He does a really great job. His models are beautiful. I'll tell you this one thing about it though is, I've been looking through his list. And I'm having a hard time finding how he uses the reductive technique on models that have dark black armor. I do. I was saying the same thing because I want to do the same thing with Space Marines. Yeah. All his stuff is like things that start with a base that is very light. Right. Or, or I guess they're not all light, but they're not black. And like there's a lot of black armor out there. Yeah. He's got a couple black ones in there. I don't know if you've noticed that. Like there's a. Um... Uh, what is the it? Black the Legion. Legion. Black Legion one. Yeah. The thing is, though, he doesn't use. <clears throat> he doesn't use the. I would say that his Black Legion one is a mix of yeah. grim dark style and the older style. Yep. Because he does. A, he he always says, "I don't do edge highlighting." But then, if you watch that video, he does edge highlighting in that yeah. video. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Anyways, good. I'm gonna mess around with it. I'm still trying to figure out what painting style I want. If you haven't checked him out, say it again for us, Justin. Because Zach Cascagoon. Yeah. It's Great. like amazing yeah. artist yeah. and it's just it's such a great thing to see it paint because it's outside of the box with painting these minis and it totally captures this 40k style of the grim dark yeah. future grim right? dark dark gritty dirty uh -huh. you know yeah. armor that's been shared between four or five people over the years maybe even like 50 people over the years you know that kind of stuff so i ended up getting two bottles of streaking grime where did you get it so first off let me let me be very clear it's I got streaking grime for Panzer Gray and streaking grime for red. Okay, oh, those aren't so the same ones he uses. It's not a hundred percent the same stuff he uses, but it's still streaking grime and it's made for those colors. Yeah. So I'm gonna use the red on my orcs because so, I don't want to shade all of them the way that I was yeah. planning to in the so beginning. So where'd you get it? Um, from this web store, would like oh you bought it online? USA. Okay, yeah. sure, yeah. And they were like six dollars a bottle. Yeah, I, that's my problem. Is I have to, before, I have to like be ready to get a couple because I just have a hard time paying six dollars for a bottle and then five dollars for shipping. Yeah, yeah, I paid eight dollars for shipping for the two of them. Yeah, it's just it is what it is. What it is. Yeah, it is what anyway. it is. Last thing on my list was uh, I had to do some anime filtering, and anyone who's been a parent realizes that there are boundaries you have to set for your children. Oh wow! And especially uh, in anime. Oh yeah, my kids like to. Uh, they're on this huge anime kick, and I guess this is actually big in the area that we live in right now. Lots of kids are are all over anime right now, but uh, we have a th rule in our house that if it is if the anime is rated TVMA, you have to come to mom and dad first, and we have to do a little bit of research to determine why it's TVMA to make the decision as to whether or not you can watch it. And I had a kid that decided they would watch a couple episodes first. Uh oh. And uh, then they, but they were honest, and they came to me and said. 
hey, uh, I saw a couple episodes of this. It is TVMA, so maybe if you could just, you know, take a look and make sure it's okay for me to watch. And I went, I looked up, and it was like absolutely not okay. Like Uh-oh. there was some serious content. So I had to have a, I had to have that conversation with a kid where you're going to tell them what they don't want to hear, and you have to deal with the teenage flack associated with that. And uh, but you know what? You get you get away from those, and it's like, dude, this is this is your job as a parent. There and then yeah. and. Think about like when we played Shadow of the Demon Lord, right? Like, amazing game. Just like a lot of this anime, it's really good, really good stuff. But there, there are age level restrictions on things for a reason. Yep. And I remember when we uh, played what we were interviewing uh, Rob Schwab once uh, about Shadow of the Demon Lord, and he was like, you know, you gotta, you gotta pay attention to that age because he, he went to a convention once and he was doing a Shadow of the Demon Lord thing, and this guy comes to the table and sits down with his kid, and his kid was like seven. Yeah. And yeah. Rob was like, uh, <laughs> this isn't the kind of game <laughs> yeah. for a seven-year-old. Especially his game. Yeah. Let's he have did a sidebar. Say... Yeah. Especially <laughs> did... his game. Yeah, especially his game. He tailored it down. Um, he said, I, I just basically had to tailor it down right there on the spot. But, you know, it's it's just there are, there are ratings there for a reason. And uh, when you get to be an adult, you can make your own decisions. But uh, for the kids, you know, we try to help them out. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, so that was my week. Nice, nice. Uh, I finished a book called The Shadows of What Was Lost by James Eslington, I think, or something like that. Ellington. Um, it was pretty good. It was interesting. It uh, has kind of an interesting magic system in it. Uh, like, you know, so it's a fantasy setting, and these people are born with sort of these powers, and there was a war that was like 20 years prior and the magic users did not come out on the winning end of the war. So there was a treaty that was signed, and they basically have to live by these tenants that govern when they can and cannot use like uh, magic. Sounds and, familiar. Yeah, and then um, there's like another class of magic users that are even more hated because they kind of fall outside of those tenants. But they, you know, are sort of shadow users. And anyway, turns out the main characters like kind of one of those shadow users and um you know hilarity ensues so Hmm. um was it it a comedy book or no not at all so (laughs) (laughs) okay different kind of hilarity yeah Yeah. i mean there's some funny moments in it but i would not say it's a funny book at all you know but um it was uh it it was this is one of those that um like i'm on kindle unlimited right Mm. which means that i've got access to like thousands of books um you know 99 percent of which i will probably never read um but um this book in particular is um uh like it was it was highly read and recommended on there but i can tell it's one of those books that is um like self-published you know um, oh really hmm. yeah like it, it could have really used the benefit of an editor like a good editor. Um, I, maybe there was an editor, but I felt like it needed, like it needed some tightening up in some places, and you know, maybe Editors a little bit. Are not unnecessary. All publishing houses have yeah. them. People oh, yeah. feed their families and pay their mortgages being editors. It's oh yeah, they are necessary. Like wheels are necessary to have an automobile. <laughs> yeah, and and a lot of the a lot of authors will be like, oh, I don't want to pay all that money. Um, but then you end up with a self-published book that does pretty good and you're, you know, you can publish it on Kindle and earn some money and yeah, you, you earn some money and stuff like that. But 
it's probably not going to leave a good taste in, for future books that you write, you know? So um, there's two more books in the series, and I'm kind of debating on whether or not I want to read them. So side question for you on yeah. that. So um, if an author self-publishes and it gets on Kindle and you do, like, your Kindle Unlimited plan, like, how do they get yeah. paid for that? Is it, like, anytime you view it and hold on and look at the book for more than two hours that Kindle considers you've invested in it and pays the author money? Or yeah, what? I mean, I, there's got to be a royalty thing associated with it, right? Yeah. And I, I bet I bet you get um, a certain amount of money if it's downloaded. You get a certain amount of money if it's kept for a certain amount of time. Mm, mm-hmm. You get um, maybe bonuses based on ratings, mm. you know, because ratings is a big deal. So, like, if you get five stars, if you get two stars or whatever, yeah. you know. This guy had something like uh, 12,000 four stars and four and a half stars. So I was like, wow, this is going to be a good book. And I read it, and I'm like, it was okay. I think it started out strong, but then it it struggled. I think it got a little too big for its britches. So, <laughs> too big for its britches. Yeah. Are you gonna plug this guy? Get him some. Yeah, what's the deal? More, um... Sure, I'll give We're him. Calling some you out love. right now, decision. Yeah, uh, let me look it up, and I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that memorable? Things. Yeah. Well, I... You know, it's it, it looks like it's a high fantasy book. It was an Australian book. Okay, all right. No, no, yeah, you you did it. James Islington, seven hundred twenty-five pages, published in two thousand fourteen. Wow, it's like six years old. Yeah, well, he's got two other books, so that's what that's the thing is there's oh, a trilogy. Oh, got it. Yep, this was the first. Got this it. is okay. the first, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, well, maybe it gets better. Maybe he got an editor for number two. It, maybe it does. Maybe it does. We'll see. I, I'll could, pick up was the this second his, one. Was this this is debut? That's a good question because the thing is, is if you it's if debut. you compare Brandon Sanderson, <laughs> who wrote Mistborn, to the Brandon Sanderson who finished The Wheel of Time or even wrote you know writing his um yeah. his uh, uh The Way of Kings and and that right. uh, series he has, it's a different Brandon Sanderson. Like he, I felt I've gone back and read Mistborn, and while I really like that book and it's very good, you can tell it's his first real trilogy. It's his first real novel that he wrote, and it's a little clunky in some places, you know. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe it does get better in the second one. Um, I, I don't know. I self-published. Yeah, look at that. 2014 self-published. I feel like this might be his first book because if you go to his website, it only shows the three books. It doesn't show it only, Shadow it, the of what was L- lost? trilogy. The Lacanius trilogy. Yeah, Lacanius trilogy doesn't show any other books on his website. Well, that's maybe. I mean, this was the first book of the Lacanius yeah. trilogy. Yeah, so maybe right? that's his. Maybe this is his first. Maybe that was his first way in, and it only gets gets better from there. Maybe, could be. That reminded but, me of the Sword of Duquesne. Mm. The Sword that, of Duquesne. That's a deep pull from the D and D episode of Community, which oh, was the one go. that Chevy Chase wiped his uh, genitals on. In game, in game. Yeah, is that Not the one that that the kid, the guy like had uh, brought to the table, and he had like gotten it through other adventures he had yeah. run? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he like lost, he stole it from the guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is a, a, a show topic. We could pick apart that episode of commu- the D&D oh, yeah. episode of Community. We should like mi- uh, mystery science theater. 2000 do a uh, watch that party episode, that yeah that episode <laughs> i'm writing down anyway. in the topics yes. yeah that'll be fun um 
yeah, so anyway, uh, just word of the wise, if you're going to write a book, get an editor. It's worth the money because I think people can tell. So I, I could tell when I read it. And see, I didn't know it was self-published, and I said I, I'm pretty sure this is self-published, and it was. Um, okay, so in other news, I played a game of 40K this last weekend on Friday, and I got rocked by our friend Garrett. It was bad. Jason, you witnessed the horror. He was playing Sisters. Yeah, he's playing your faction. Of it was he's played bad. that for like decades. So yeah, exactly. And I'm just getting. I'm trying to keep all the rules straight of this thing, man. It is like so much more to take in than Age of Sigmar. And anyway, I the, the other thing too was I did not like that list. As soon as I was fielding it, I'm like, I don't like this list, and I don't think I played it very well. And so I changed my list because I joined this thing called Alpha League. It's their fifth season. And um, I'm going to be doing this five-week kind of tournament-style play. And it's going to be good, just good time on table. That's is really that what I need more than good anything. Good, clean, Or is that live? What's that, Dan? Tabletop simulator or live? Oh, it's a tabletop simulator. And the cool thing is, is from, like, people from all over the world. So I could be playing in Australia in one week and then a guy from England next week. So it'll be good. I would love to do that, but my schedule just is not flexible enough. The nice thing is it's once a week. So as long as I can schedule early in the week and figure out, okay, what is the time and put it on the calendar for the week coming up, then it'll be okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I can make yeah. the time. So it's not five games in five days or, you know, three games one day, two games, two games the next. It's five games over five weeks. I could I can pull that off. So, time on table. That's all I need. Yep. Uh, and then the last thing is I finished the season two of the Umbrella Academy this week. Oh, I've got, I've got I think I'll probably finish it tonight after we fin- we're done. I think the last couple episodes were some of the strongest in the series. Oh, well, I'm looking yeah, forward to it. They were good. They were really good. I really very much enjoyed them. So, cool. um, yeah, this is a, it's a very entertaining show. And I think that there's some characters in it that, um, specifically Klaus and number five. Oh, Klaus is I, awesome. Klaus is amazing. And number five is great. You know, the fact that you have an old man trapped in a, in, in like a teenager's body. I think it's just yeah. fantastic. Right. Apparently the actor's only 16 years old. Did you know that? Is that true? I was thinking he looked. I looked he him still up. looked like he was a teenager. I looked him up. He's 16 years old, and he does an amazing job yeah. for being 16. An amazing I'm... job playing a 16-year-old. Wait a minute. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> playing a 40-year-old trapped in a 16-year-old's right. body. Um, so, uh, or even older than that. But anyway, he um, those two, I think those two characters really tie the rest of the group together and make it work. You know. I tell you, my wife and we were talking about this show, and this is a problem with sh- big shows like this, uh, are shows that have big casts, also mm-hmm. like The Walking Dead, right? Um, mm-hmm. They have such a large cast. You think about um, the the uh, just the bill they have to pay whenever they have an, episodes that have every cast member member in them. Yep. And then if and then if each one of those cast members reaches out and starts like a side arc. Which is what keeps these story, kind of stories interesting. You've got like you know seven main cast members, and each one of those main cast members has a side story that you're periodically yeah. switching to and following. And and each one of those has new characters that come in and that maintain over several episodes. I mean, oh, it, yeah. just, it can exponentially grow the cast list. 
Yep. And you think like, I wonder how how much like directors and producers like struggle with the writers of like, no, look, you cannot add any more new friends. <laughs> we can't afford it. You know, like that kind yeah. of stuff. Just logistics, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Let alone, let alone trying to keep everybody straight on set and everything. I know. I know. It's impressive. It's a great show. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. And then the last thing that I am working on or have been working on is I sort of took up painting some of my war cry minis and I said, I want to finish them out. And I ended up picking up a fury and painting them up and boy, am I in love with it? Like I did the wing. You said, did you see the mm-hmm. wings? Yeah, that it I looks, oh it man. Looks good. I, I did a different technique and I really, really like it. And for the record, it was the most, my post was that post of the uh, Fury's wings was the highest rated Instagram post I've ever had. Well done, sir. Well thank you, done. thank you, well thank done. you, thank you. I needed some praise from you guys today, so I, I had to fish for. I it. like the um, I like the thighs. Yes, the thighs look good. They do look good. They look good. <laughs> yeah, they look good. Yeah. Well, they got a nice shine to them. Yeah. Like the dark skin, but then like the light shine on the thighs. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a yeah. big I'm a big fan. I want to actually do the armor of the Space Marines around that same color. So, yeah, I'm I'm thinking of how to do that, but with the dark style. So who knows? Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. all right, that's all for me. Let's go to geek news. Dan, take us away, buddy. Geek news. Well, there's a new D and D source book that has been announced. Tasha's Guide to Everything. So, if you're familiar with Xanatar's Guide to Everything, this is yet another. Well, it's Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Oh. Did I write sorry. that down wrong? Yeah, you totally I did. That's show my fault. Fail. Tasha's it was a show note fail. Set up. To everything. Tasha's wow. Cauldron to everything. Yeah, I or maybe of everything. I rolled a one. Um, well, I gave you a bad modifier, so there you go. Yeah. Tasha, yeah, I had disadvantage. Uh, yes, so if you're familiar with Xanatar's Guide, it had a bunch of new character options and um, some new game mechanics. Most of that has been... Uh, gleaned from all the wonderful unearthed arcana that uh, dungeon masters like Jay never let you use. Um, <laughs> One time, Jason. <laughs> you're never going to live it down. One That's time. Okay. You know what? Play some mothership with us and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're going to let me use this mechanic? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, right. <laughs> we'll see how it turns Has on you. Has anyone ever played the same character twice in Mothership? I don't. <laughs> I have. I played. I played Android twice. Uh, That's no, true. No, the same character who lived between. No, nope. no, nope. That's what mm-hmm. I'm talking about. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. All right. So, yeah. anyway, um, so there'll be cheeky narration from uh, Tasha, uh, much like Xanatar had its its narration. So, if you're looking for subclasses um, and ways to um, improve game uh character creation this is this is a go-to this is a probably going to be a must-have book um i I know that i got a lot of mileage out of xanatar's guide if you look back at the player's handbook it was written in 2014 that's a long time ago you know uh that's uh, six years you know in the making they some certain you need some level of variety to keep 5e exciting besides all the homebrews and all the other modules you can you know buy so uh this is one i don't buy a lot of DD books because i don't run DD, but i'm very likely to pick this one up um 
I, I I fell into the trap in some of the other versions of the games of buying every splat book, every every book, because it would have something that you could use to break a game mechanic if you paired it with something from six books ago. Um, so I I love that part of uh, min maxing. I'm I'm mm-hmm. not gonna lie. So um, these these are cool opportunities to look for um, opportunities to optimize your character and 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 make it make your character more fun, more unique. Special. So, Dan, you mentioned something really interesting. Um, D&D 5e was released in 2014. D&D 4e was released in 2008. So it was six years between yeah. the release of 4e and 5e. We're six years now. I don't think that there is an end in sight for 5e. What we're seeing is beta rules being actively tested every year and then new guides that come out every you know, like Xanathar's came out 2017. This is coming out 2020. You know, so maybe every two or three years, you're getting these updates of character classes, of uh, you know, rule sets, of environments. And um, I think what they said is the bones are good here, right? Yeah. The bones are really good. Let's just keep adding new, fresh ideas where we can. And the difference between 5e. And 4E, and one of the differences, and uh, people can shout me down, is that they publish more for the DM than they do for the player, which is genius because you don't have D&D games without DMs. Right. So if you look at the player's handbook, Xanatars and Tasha's, you're up to three whole books compared to all of the adventures and all of the other ways to um, run your D&D game. So um, I would I would definitely say they figured out um, a, a, a better build, a better, because before, if you were a DM, you'd have to buy two books every month just to keep up. I mean, look yeah. at what they published in 4E in six years. It is a monstrous stack of books. And that was their strategy, was to push paper out the door of varying quality. And that varying quality was exploitable by certain players, <clears throat> you know, yours truly. <laughs> it would be like, oh, look at this mechanic. If I add this plus this, this is rules as written, and, I, and I'm amazing. And so that... The problem with that is it pitches the player against the DM, and three five had that problem as well. So uh, they they're more interested in the experience of having a good role playing game. Um, you know, fourth edition was very map based, as everybody complains, and that felt very different. Felt you know kind of like a dissenty type thing. So we're excited. Um, it's still they still need it. They, it still needs a fresh coat of paint every now and then. Yeah. Well, and, and the beta testing that they've done regularly with this Unearthed Arcana, I think, is a 21st century solution to content issues, right? Let's let the players test it out so that when we do make it official, it we've worked out all the bugs. Yes. You know, and they, you, can't, you can't exploit something yes. necessarily in it. And it's just more anti-player behavior on the part of the freaking publisher. So screw it. <laughs> screw it. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah. All right. Somebody else awesome. take Shadow of the Weird Wizard. That's not my bag. I'll take it. <clears throat> so we talked earlier about, you know, Robert Schwab and his Shadow of the Demon Lord um, and how it's it definitely has an age limit on what's appropriate um, yep. for people. So Robert Rob realized that he had a something that was really cool. He had good game mechanics. Um, and we've talked about the game mechanics when we had our initiative session and, and other things. But um, 
uh, and he said, "Hey, we can take this. Let's let's put it to a wider audience." And so yeah. he came up with uh, Shadow of the Weird Wizard, which is specifically supposed to be for like you know all ages. Um, so it's not going to deal with this kind of the dark setting that Shadow of the Demon Lord has. Um, and he is making tweaks. If you read his website, he does he he, he is making tweaks, and he's going to continue to support the Demon Lord. Yeah. Um, but this is his new IP. He's excited for it to take it and bring it to. I'm not going to say a family setting because I haven't seen it yet, but to take it to um, a, maybe a little bit of a lighter and more of a fantasy uh, uh, base so that you can play it with a younger generation as well. Well, and we talked about when we did the review of the Shadow of the Demon Lord, how the community um, loves Shadow of the Demon Lord for its easy mechanics, but also the kind of inappropriateness of it you know what Mm -hmm. i mean like like the community sort of rallies behind this because it's not your vanilla D &D, right it's you've got you've got uh very inappropriate references to things and you know you've got some pretty heavy content that you're going through it feels much more mature um you know in terms of like nc17 mature sometimes versus uh you know just being a mature person it, yeah um, it's kind of like <laughs> the D where the pg-13 then shadow the demon lord is rated x it's kind of yeah. like the rolling stones and the beatles <laughs> yeah there you go kind of yeah that's a great yeah great way to say it actually. maybe motley crew motley crew there you go rolling stones <laughs> exactly. So, so uh, you know, I, I what's interesting is you and I had an interview with Rob on our uh, tales, or not tales of Bloodstone. That was somebody else's mic. <laughs> what blood, was the name blood of your podcast? Steel. Whoops, Blood and Steel blood and podcast. Steel. Yeah, on our yeah. Blood and Steel which you can podcast. Still find. Yes, which you can still find. Um, we had an interview with Rob, and he actually talked about reskinning this. Not only like this was his his the first one he yeah, wanted to do. Yeah, I remember do. that. But he also said, I've got ideas for a sci-fi thing and maybe a West. Did he say a Western thing at one point? I don't remember. But anyway, a sci-fi thing was definitely on the table. Um, and um, he he also has his Punk Apocalyptica game, which is sort of like a Wasteland. Mad you Max. Know, Mad Max version of, of it. But that is also like squarely within the maturity level of Shadow of the Demon Lord as well. Yeah. Yeah, I remember him saying that, and he did say, you know, he says that um, when he built Shadow of the Demon Lord, he built it as a system specifically to deliver horror. Yeah. Uh, and that's a quote from his website. Um, and so this one, you know, he's he's given it a little bit more of a new polish. Um, he's tweaking it a little bit. He's gone around to conventions and played it uh, with people under different names. Uh, so I'm interested. Um, there's It was just announced early October. Well, kind of almost mid-October. I think the 10th ish is when the post is dated but uh there's no announcement yet as to how he's planning to kind of bring it out um on there but we'll see uh we'll see what happens so keep an eye out for it if you know i'm a very big advocate of him him as a mechanic creator for role-playing games so i'm excited to look at i will definitely pick it up and take a look at it yeah for sure for sure back to you dan all right I, I don't want to trip over you guys doing Shadow of the Demon Lord because I only played. I never. I was never That's in an all ongoing. That's all good. I wasn't invited to the ongoing campaign. <clears throat> You're in the one shot kill everybody. <laughs> That's right. You impregnated me with a lizard. That's baby. right. You got impregnated. <laughs> yeah. That was in Didn't my own try basement. To get... No. Wait. 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 Dan, we try. We we successfully 
cut it extracted. out of you. Yeah, we, <laughs> yeah. we got I it extracted. I think I died from that, though. Didn't I die from uh, that? No, they extracted out of you successfully. The There were another person that they didn't. Yeah. My wife's in the corner laughing. It's, it's, it's all... <laughs> We got that harvester. Yeah, we got that harvester with the weird like tool, tool yeah. hands. Edward Scissorhands. They wanted to come the and... eggs. They wanted the yeah. eggs for something, and so they were willing to take it out of you. Oh my god! Like, all right, well, you scratch your back, you scratch mine. Whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was a, that was a good setting. There were like two of you. Two of you were infected. No, three of you were infected. And so you had it all in like the bottom of an inn, just laying on wooden tables, all getting cut open at the same time. Yeah, yeah. It was fun. That Good dice, times. That Good dice rolls. mechanic is designed to punish players. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Once again, the publishers coming after the players. <laughs> so if you want to fix Dungeons and Dragons, the you the opportunity is yours, folks, friends, friends, Romans, countrymen, elves, dwarves, drow. The uh, job for vice president of Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> is open. Yep. And they have a posting of it online. You can apply to be the vice president in uh, in the Hasbro company. Who's well, over yes. D&D. Yeah, um, vice president of Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> is the actual job title. Yes. Yeah. I, I, it's, uh, I mean, I, I'm halfway thinking about it, but... The role is an executive level position leading the D&D brand across all media. Through the tabletop, RPG is given more of a focus in the job listing. And it requires 10 years of business marketing or product management experience. Well, gosh, I'm a federal bureaucrat. I think I could do it. <laughs> you might be able to, man. Well, I uh, worked on I cars. That means I'm a dentist. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Send them pictures of your half-built gaming table. Exactly. And say, look, look how much I care. I'm in my garage. Yeah. Check out these legs. I built up. <laughs> <laughs> this is what the vice president of D&D needs to fix. Wife aggro for playing what? games. <laughs> spousal. We should say spousal. Wouldn't it be funny? It's funny. You look down right below it and it says, you know, the standard, like, equal employment opportunity. Wouldn't it be funny if there was, like, a quote at the bottom that said, half-orcs need not apply. <laughs> Oh, he went there. He went there. He went there with the half a orc. Jeez, this is how it starts, man. Uh, yeah. How, I, I, how, so, so, how much do you think that this would pay? Ballpark figure. Uh, I, I'm gonna say I don't think they could get anybody to lead a, a global brand for less than six figures. I would agree with that. They're based out of Seattle too, so there's gonna be a cost of living adjustment there. Just yeah. So 120? Yeah. 160? I think probably 160. Yeah. I could see that. So it says 10 plus years, but they probably mean a lot more than that, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you're that, going to be that's always one of those people things. that have 15. It's one of my favorites when I see a job advertisement. Oh, and yeah. I know I know the position, and they're like, three plus years of this experience. And I'm like, you guys are going to get a bunch of freaking interns applied to this <laughs> because they think that they've got three plus years when you're really looking for 15. You know, so yeah. so one of the yeah. problems with these jobs is that because you would just like being an actor or being a paid mu- musician, it's fun to do it. So all the writers yeah. and everybody out there is like, hey, I do what I love, but it, it's not as lucrative as I would like. Um, so and you're part of a, a large corporation and you have to deliver and it's really about stockholder equity. Yeah. Um, and so if you're. Um, if the geek inside of me is like, oh, I'll just get to play D&D all day. But then you have to deal with, okay, supply and 
uh, talent and recruiting top talent. And there's probably a lot less Dungeons and Dragons involved in being the vice president of Dungeons and Dragons. It's probably a lot more enabling other people to make the game as good as it could be. But at the same time, though, I hope somebody, I hope whoever gets the job is somebody who actually plays it and is a, is a gamer and cares about this stuff and cares about what that legacy means. I, D, yeah. You know, D&D is, is the Disney of gaming. Uh, let's be quite honest. Um, you know, there's a lot of animation out there, but there's only one Disney, just like there's only one, one D&D. It is interesting. I'm guessing that that position is probably much less gaming on the table and more of running a business as a business. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, and that's when, you know, when you're, you've always got to be careful about mixing your hobbies with your actual work. Because yeah. work, work is work. You yeah. can't get around that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's funny because you hear all the time, right? Like, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life baloney like i've never (laughs) believed anyone that has ever said that right you may enjoy what you do and that's okay but honestly like anytime i've tried to monetize something i really like i end up hating it yeah i end up absolutely hating it because we we do this to get a break yeah Yeah, exactly you know Yeah. yeah yeah so i'm always a little wary about trying to monetize my fun because I, I've I've had it backfire a few times, you know, mm-hmm. and it just it ends up not being fun. Like I've thought about doing like um, commission painting, you know, and be like, oh, I could, you know, paint for other people and earn money to do it. And I'm like, oh, it might be a fun thing to do to like, uh, you know, pay for the hobby a little bit. And I still get a paint and all that stuff and maybe models that I wouldn't choose myself. But then I start thinking about like, I'd have like painting a 120 model army or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, and, and knowing I have to do it right then because yep. somebody's paying for me. Like I, it would just would not be fun for me to paint anymore. And, and I'd want to not do it. Competing against uh, people in foreign countries that will do it for a dollar yeah. a mini plus shipping and stuff. Like yeah, that. exactly. So yep. know, there's not a lot. I mean, and that's the thing is, what are the fundamentals? What are the fundamentals? You know, yeah. if you're the vice president of D&D, the fundamentals is publishing and digital entertainment and and licensing other media and stuff like that, right? Um, those are the fundamentals you have to have a passion for, for your job, not as necessarily your outlet. Dude, um, Dan, you should totally apply yeah, I, then you could get us all. You could get us all the free D and D books. I could. I. I think I could get to the. I think uh, if my resume had even a scrap of of shadow of this, I, I think if I got to the interview stage, I could talk a good game. So oh, yeah. So do you think Dan? Let's let's say let's say you would apply to this. Let's just throw this out there. Campaign Dan for vice yeah. president. Dan D&D. for vice president. <laughs> Dan VP twenty twenty. This, um, this holiday, yeah, this holiday season. <laughs> it's now time to take revenge on all the DMs who hated me. So let's say let's say you applied for this. Um, do you feel like this job would be enough of a separation of your hobby and your work? Yeah, because I'm a Star Wars fan. <laughs> well, okay, 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 okay. Mic drop. Yeah, well, fair like, enough. Boom. Yeah, well, All right. Lucas, I couldn't work for Lucas. Duh. Yeah, reason number one, Dan's not getting the job. <laughs> well, then, uh, next. We've been uh, to your house. We saw how much Star Wars crap you have, and you have only exactly. four D&D books on your shelf. What's all this FFG stuff in here? <laughs> um, 
<laughs> you gotta stop playing X-wing during work days. I'm yeah, t- it was <laughs> that would be reason. really funny. So Walking in his office, there's just X-wing armada stuff all over the place. <laughs> Wait a minute. So what, I feel like building? I feel like doing this job has nothing to do with playing the game. Oh, I mean, I don't think it would. You know what I mean? In the sense of like uh, having a knowledge of the game and knowing how it works and know how you play, that's how you do your awesome marketing and talking it up and all that stuff. But um, I could go home and still play D&D and not feel like I was working. Well, it, the, I think the difference, though, is that in order to do this job successfully, you have to understand the demographic around yep. the game. So you're going to have to it, you're going to have to be living and breathing it nonstop. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So you're like, oh, I don't want to pull out an elf character right now. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, I've heard a lot of people who have been professional developers at, uh, you know, different game companies, and they all have lunchtime games. You know, you know, usually every lunch they have is taken up with a with an RPG campaign or a standee minis game or something like that, because a lot of the playtesting or a lot of the experimentation happens during lunch. So even as a designer, as a developer for these games, your lunch hour is really not even your lunch hour. Yeah, you're playing yeah. the game. Yeah. And at one o'clock, you're going to go back to writing copy. You know, so um, and those jobs do not pay. That's what yeah. I that's what I would f- feel terrible about, because just like uh, certain other professions that people do it for the love of it, uh, they finance you can financially abuse those people. That they, if they were in another discipline, could make way more money. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Well, listen. If anybody's interested, you have our blessing to apply. We just need we need info. If you Keep heard us about updated. it from us, we we need a two percent kickback and <laughs> a lot of free books. We're also willing to serve as a reference. Yeah, just for six months. Six months for for the kickback. Yeah, yeah, we yeah we don't know who you are, but we we will swear that you're the best. We will. Just refer to us, and we'll back you up. No problem. Woohoo! <laughs> All right, let's get into our main topic of the day. Forty-nine um, minutes in. Yeah, seriously. Uh, We're talking about skirmish games today. Uh, Skirmish games occupy this weird space between full-on war games, whether that be historical or, you know, Warhammer or uh, uh, Armada style, you know, Fantasy Flight games. Things like war war games have tons of minis on the table that you're just kind of rolling dice and pushing a bunch of models around. And and then on the other end of the spectrum, there's your board games. Um, even if it's like an Axis and Allies or a Catan or a Monopoly for Jason's benefit, um, you know, you've got sort of these two competing style games. Skirmish games fall in the middle. So um, let's talk about skirmish games. What makes a skirmish game skirmish game distinct? How do how do you know that you're playing a skirmish game? Hmm. I think um, I I would definitely go by number of models. Okay. Um, I think uh, you know a dozen is a pretty fair number. Uh, I don't know how much that your average army in um, that you guys were do- were doing with Age of Sigmar is, but I'm sure you had more than twelve models on the table at any time. I'm sure a couple of absolutely lists were yeah. probably ha- had twelve or thirteen or fourteen. But in skirmish yeah. games that I've been involved in, there's usually you, you rarely, rarely, rarely have 
um, tw you know, 12 models. Uh, the ones that I've played sometimes have had a limit of 12 models for one right. side or the other. Yeah, it's 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 almost like you've got somewhere between a handful and a dozen, right? I mean, there's no real number because you could have different list builds and things like that depending on what you're playing. But I think a distinguishing feature definitely is the low model count, right? You're not pushing around 120 models on a table on one side of your army. You're not having to truck it in with backpacks and, and uh, those little, you know, roller carriers, and things like that. Like you can bring them in in a little compact case in your hand, and a and a small dice a dice bag. And I, I think that's another thing is the amount of dice that you're rolling usually for um, a, a skirmish game is significantly less than a war game. I mean, I think there was one time, Jason, where we're playing. Did you roll 120 dice one time against me? Uh, yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> that was like one unit. That was one unit, right? Because you know, they had three. Th yeah, they, no, we're talking about skirmish games. Yeah, go. Yeah, so they had like three <laughs> attacks. You had like three attacks for one unit that had forty models. Yeah, three attacks per like model. That. So you're rolling like hundred and twenty dice. So we're yeah. just working through that, right? Um, also, and then you contrast that also with board games like Monopoly. You're rolling two dice. Some can, games can you're only just rolling not talk one about dice. Monopoly. Yes, can no, we we're going to keep talking like about Monopoly. Monopoly. We will keep talking. There are All right, other fine. Board games risk. on the earth. Let's do risk. Ri fine. Uh, risk. You're rolling we, 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 five we, we, dice yes. total, right? Yeah. I mean, three on one side, two on the other, um, and uh, you know that's what you're that's what you're rolling for uh, your board game. A skirmish game, you could be rolling anywhere between. Uh, three and a dozen dice again, you know, maybe it's up yep. to a dozen. It just depends, but it's yep. really not, it's a, it's not more than a hand, literal, a literal handful. Like you could fit all the dice you need to roll usually in one hand. I would, I would concur with that assessment is a limited number of dice and maybe a limit, a more limited number of total game components. Another mm -hmm. thing is time limits. Okay. Um, Ooh, that's a good point. I don't yeah. know about. I've not played enough large war games to, to really kind of weigh in. I've played a few, and they're you know the ones that I that I've invested the, the limited number that I've invested in. The larger war games have larger time periods to play because you're just moving more stuff, and it's a more complex experience. When you're moving a handful of you know three to four to five to six models. You know, you, you may be looking at a one-hour time increment, which it would be considered more, a more compressed time, or in some cases, 45 minutes. Um, and the extreme end would be like 70, 75 minutes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, I think an Age of Sigmar tournament time limit is two hours and 45 minutes. Ooh. You know, so you've got three hours that you're playing, and you don't usually finish your game. You're usually at the end of turn three, maybe in turn four by mm -hmm. the time that time limit hits. So you could easily play <clears throat> a four-hour game in Age of Sigmar. I'd say three and a half, four-hour game, right? Um, and that's if both sides even know what they're doing. Um, contrast that with uh, Warcry that can be played in theory in 45 minutes. You know, and you've got a good, you had a pretty good game um, if both sides know what they're doing, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. So time limit for sure. Yep, that's pretty I, good. I think time is a good one. I think number of dice is a good one. Model count is good. Um, I think maybe maybe not. I was going to say simplicity of objectives, but I think some of the bigger war games, the, the game objectives are pretty simple too. 
uh, yeah, in those. I agree with that. So, so maybe that's maybe the objective. And of, I would argue that like Warcry playing that, it's got some complicated ones in there where it's it like can, one dude's, yeah. one dude's when got you add this, it's got to run. Yeah, exactly. You add the twists that can kind of tweak the rules yep. a little bit, and that's a one thing that's really great about it. Warcry that the twists always make every battle just slightly a little bit different. But. Yeah. One of the problems with one of the skirmish games that I'm familiar with is they when it when it evolved into the competitive space, they didn't have objectives built into the game then, mm. and it was like they kept trying to tack things on later, but nothing. They've never really gotten away from the the basic setup with a that you know. The initial just uh, straight up kill or be killed. Whoever, if you kill the other other enemies list, you're done. Otherwise, you compare points, and who's ever the bigger, who's ever killed more is the winner, right? Yeah. Um, and I think on the other side, I've played a a war game where you cannot have a game with a um, without an objective. And I know a lot of people who love that war game because. It's not just kill or be killed because right. there's things you have to do on the board to get points. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's six different objectives. The person who wins initiative gets to pick, you know, who's there. There are three that they brought or the other guy's three that he brought or she brought. And and that's one way that that, that game has a depth of a different depth than just sheer mathematics yeah. of, of chewing up a list and spitting it out. Yeah. So, um, so I was thinking about this just now as you, as you guys were talking, the, um, I, let's take Axis and Allies actually, cause this is an interesting thing. It wants to be a war game, right? Cause you end up rolling a lot of dice. You end up much, moving a lot of little pieces that you could call models in a sense. Right. Um, but it's not a war game because it has a fixed mat. Right, the board that you play on is fixed. Every single time, it doesn't change. You set your pieces up every single time the same way. The country lines that are drawn never move. Right, like you, you the the player initiative never changes. Like it's got some set rules that you play, and then you know you roll dice like you would with a war game in it. But that is a board game. That is a, a board war game, I guess you could call it. But the difference between that and like a skirmish game or even, you know, a bigger war game is that um, in a skirmish game, the board size is, is significantly smaller than a big war game. A big war game is normally paid, played on a, like a four by six foot table. A skirmish game, Warcry, for example, is played on a 22 by 30 inch board, right? So it's a quarter the size of, of what you would normally play. And... That board is just a play area. It's it's not a definitive drawn area, and you can set up the terrain however you want on it, and you can set up different things on it that change the gameplay every single time, right? You're not playing the exact same scenario every single time, um, and I think that that is a very distinct feature of war games, is that every game is can be different. It has the opportunity to to be different. I I think that um, we are familiar with that style of war game, but I think that there are war games that also fit the opposite of that. Um, and I'll point to historical war gaming. Okay. A lot of historical war gaming is played on a board that is Earth. 
and um, you know, from a time period, maybe it's focused into one area of the world, right. you know, like maybe right. Prussia or something. Um, and the boundaries are fixed because it's a historical reenactment of that time period. And what they'll do is on that same board, um, they may play different scenarios on those boards that are take place in different events that occurred in the historical timeline. Right. There, but uh, those boundaries are fixed. They are not changed, changing based on uh, what they're what they're playing based on the scenario. You would say so. That's an example yeah. of you know you're using a board that actually has drawn boundaries on it, um, and you have troop settings that are the uh, that are the same. And I would argue that a lot of people, if we look at that today, we could say very clearly, you know, if you replace some of those just square chits that are there with um, little like risk figures if you would we would look at that and say oh it's just a board game it's a historical board game right but there's a huge community that would argue no this is war gaming in it and i think i wonder if it's just um i wonder if it's just like an evolution of the term a semantics well, you, you know the, the historical war games you know are are the entire gaming hobby comes from that D came out of the the writers going we could do more with than just doing historical reenactments this could be fantasy yeah, uh -huh. there could be characters and stuff like that that's where all of this comes from historical war games um, and i'll right. be honest with you historical reenactments are only fun to a degree uh, because <laughs> i've played with i've played i used to play a couple of them and i played with this one guy who was i mean he was very strict about historical accuracy to the point that when I came over to his house once and he set up the game and like he had like he had 90% of the board was his and I had two little squares and he was like okay that's you and this is the game we're going to play tonight I'm like wait a minute how is this going to be fair or fun or balanced <laughs> yeah, in yeah, these yeah, ways yeah. like that's not how it was yeah yeah and I'm like uh all right so for two hours I basically huddled in a corner pushing forward then retreating pushing forward then retreating pushing just to keep the line yeah from moving and and that's what happened in real life <laughs> in yeah. that scenario. And he was like, that was a fun game. I was like, yeah, it was okay. Well, that's, <laughs> see, for the historical war gamers, that's part of the fun is the simulation. It's the yep, holodeck. Absolutely. And they're trying to get it as close as they possibly can. And they've always yeah. struggled with randomization. I mean, the, the war games they were playing 100 years ago had little cannons that shot matches. Like, you would shoot a mat. You'd have, a, like, a spring-loaded match you would shoot into other painted lead soldiers, right? Like, um, and they were out there with tape measures and stuff like that doing distance. Um, and, and it's a real thing. And, 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 and there's a huge part of the gaming community that's still alive and well, like you mentioned, that derives great joy out of that. A lot of us came into gaming through RPGs and were a, a little bit different um, yeah. than, than coming in through the historical angle. So I think that, I think that the scale is probably just the biggest thing. And you can, you can apply scale to multiple things. You can apply scale to number of models, scale to number of dice, scale to number to time, um, so, scale okay, to so, area. So, yeah. so let me ask you this though, and, and I, I don't disagree with you on the scale part, but I'm going to go back to the idea of a fixed game that may be true for historical wargaming, but can you name a skirmish game that has a fixed setup every single time? If you play the same mission, yes. Um, well, but, but that's not the, that's, I mean, 
skirmish games kind of thrive with an ever-changing mission set, though. Yeah, I, I, I'll kind of lean on your side. I mean, uh, like X-Wing, the standard mode of play is six obstacles, three for each right. side. The obstacles aren't, they do move, and game positions change based on the whim of where you're going to put your models down on one side of the board. So yes, yeah. that's different every time. But I, I yeah, I, I do think to get to these war games the way modern war gaming, like to your point, Jay, has to be more balanced because the 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 user the, the the fun is do i have an do i have a fair shot at winning this game by using strategy right. unlike a historical war game which is did i beat the general who was actually there did i do better did i do better than mm-hmm. grant and did i do better than mm-hmm. lee and all those guys and that is mm-hmm. part of their fun and that is real fun so yeah i i think um you know, but but for skirmish games, like you said, to scale, I, I think that's another thing. I think there's a level of depth of rules. Um, I think on a skirmish game, one of the goals is to abbreviate some of that depth that you would get in a that you may find in a war game, just to keep the yeah. game accessible, fun, sure. and keep yeah. people coming to it. Um, there are people who come to the deeper war games for the fact that they have to buy a 300-page hardbound book just to run their faction. They love that, uh, and, and that's their fun, and that's cool too. Um, and, and some some people want to make that deep level of investment. Yeah, I think that I would agree that uh, wargaming as we know it right now is has is a classification of game that has the flexibility to while the deployment and to, to clarify my point why the deployment zones could be very similar maybe even the same every time you play the game how you you have the freedom to right. arrange your units inside those deployment zones to make the game different every time yeah i think that's how we're familiar with it i wouldn't i wouldn't put that as a required a requirement to make it a war game though yeah no, I, I do think that that is how, I mean, in, in just speaking in the rubric of skirmish games, right, I do think that that is a major differentiator from board games, you know, like if from I were board to games, play, is that what you're yeah, yeah, board from games. board yeah. games, because like, if I play a risk, or if I play an axis and allies, yeah, I can set up a little bit differently on risk, you know, it depends on which cards I draw, that type of thing. Yeah. But the fact is, is the board does not change. The board itself is always going to be the same, you I know, think, and, and so the that, strategies yeah. are always going to be the same because of the board, which is hunker down in Australia, try to take South America. You know what I mean? Like you, you always have those same strategies because the board never changes versus, you know, and, and again, speaking about skirmish games and not historical, I'm putting that aside right now, but skirmish games, you know, you, you can say, I tried one strategy one time. It didn't work. I'm going to try a different one. Yeah. I'm going to try a different one. I'm going to try a different one. And you can't really do that in a risk. You definitely can't do that. I mean, you can try a different strategy in Axis and Allies, but the fact is, is you're starting the same spot every time. So your branching out is somewhat limited. You know? And I think that these are uh, what we're applying. We're applying, um, you know, um, <clears throat> points that generally are categorizing the games, realizing that there's always exceptions, right? Like right. there are board games that change the board every time you play. Like maybe this, t- maybe you roll a dice and whatever dice the tile lands Betrayal on, that tile isn't accessible Hill during is this game. Yeah, betrayal or, in the house, whatever or, that one is. The yes, betrayal. Uh, the, the you know you draw the tiles yep. randomly. Um, you know those kinds of uh, those kinds of games. So there are board. Ga- there are always exceptions that kind of blend 
blend these different genres to create unique and interesting playing experiences. Um, yeah, that's a very good point. Yep. Yeah, very but I point. think I would say my main, if you're just looking at tabletop wargaming, what defines a skirmish game versus a war game, I think it's absolutely the main point is just scale. Yeah. And scale in all forms. Yeah, it, scale of rules, down. Yep. scale of dice, scale of miniature, scale of board size. Yeah. You know, bring it down. Um, much, much more simplicity there. And I think that that's one of the biggest pros with uh, comparing it to a war game is that it's easier for someone to get into it and pick up and play immediately. We had mm -hmm. our Warcry event at GuildCon that we talked about last week, and how many player new players did we have? We had three brand new players that had never played it before, and we were able to have a successful event. There is no way that we could have taken three players and taught them Age of Sigmar in that amount of time and played Age of Sigmar, even if it was a day tournament, three games, and had you know a good time. It would have been right. a nightmare. Only if you dumbed it down <laughs> super – and you basically use it by controlling the lists yep. and have nothing that interesting in any list. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> absolutely so i think that that's one of the pros is it's easier it's easier to um in terms of some of the war games right it's easier to move around you don't have to have boxes and boxes that you take to the game store with you you could literally have a little a little mm -hmm. case of, yeah. of miniatures right um transport. The, uh, yeah transport is a big big deal another thing is and, and i'm and i'm kind of learning this is you and i were going through and thinking about several different war bands that we could come up with in Warcry, and I think that there in in many of these games, because you only have to get like six to twelve models, you can diversify very easily. You know, you don't have to invest in a two thousand point army with other models that could cost you four, five, six hundred dollars. You know, minimum, um, you could get into a warband for fifty bucks. Mm -hmm. and yeah, be, and be good. So it's it's a little bit easier on the wallet, and you can diversify. If you really hate something, you can switch really easily without feeling like you spent all that money. So now you have to play the faction. Yeah, and um, not everything has to scale. For example, um, Infinity, a sci-fi game. I would argue that Infinity is a skirmish game because you're only bringing a very yep. you know a handful of uh, models on mm -hmm. your side. Um, it's easy to get into. It's you know it's relatively cheap to get that built up. But the battlefield is almost the same size. It's not quite the same size as like a six by four foot, but it is still big relative to the size of the model. Interesting. Uh, but the rules of the game, because it's a science fiction game, the rules of the game allow you to kind of move and traverse that field um, in such a way. And it's a, it's a sci-fi sh shooting game. It's a yeah. military shooting game. So you don't need to be, you know, right up next to each other to, to engage the game, the engagement zones maybe are scaled, uh, appropriately, but, um, but, uh, that's a, that's a good example of a game that, uh, or kind of what you were saying where you only, it's, it's cheaper to get into. You're not paying, you know, you look at these, you know, Warhammer 40 K and age of Sigmar and, and some of these other dudes, and you're paying 500, dollars to get your army on the table to play a game Ugh. right uh versus uh. um you know like uh war cry you like you said you're paying 35 to 50 bucks yeah yeah and you can definitely. you can use that army and play with that army as long as you want 
And if you decide that you want to try something new, it's only another 35 to 50 bucks to try something new. Exactly. Exactly. That's so crazy. So, so what's the downside compared to some of the, some bigger games? Of skirmish games? Yeah. Uh, Is there a downside? Um, I, I think with a limited, a smaller rule set and maybe um, a less if there's less possible variance in list building you have a meta that constrains uh, more more tightly more quickly mm. right so if there's if, if there's no room for creativity uh, and some game yeah some games metas calcify really fast and that's that's the that's the designer's fault if they don't have a, a an easy mechanism to make adjustments like for instance yeah. for x-wing uh, the meta game was crazy. They would come out with a new wave. You could find a broken combo that the devs missed, and that's what all the models you needed to buy for the next three months. And then you were going to be tip top, even if you were a crappy pilot. Uh, that um, they they fixed that by not printing any of the point values of any of any um, upgrade or ship on the card. You have to get it out of the app. And they do a quarterly app update where they adjust points. And yeah. the app tells them who's flying what and what's winning and what's losing. And they're totally sniffing what you're doing. And that's fine, I guess. Um, but at the same time, that that means they can take older crappy models that nobody thinks are good anymore. And they can go, nobody's played these for, you know, uh, six months. There's still some value here. Let's Let's cost adjust them to make them more interesting. And then suddenly that that tips the scales. Yeah, but that's an extreme thing. That's using technology and using like you literally can't play X Wing anymore without an app, right? Um, you know, there it is. It is not possible to do it in a purely play competitively. That is, you can, you can play friendly in an in an analog way. They have a, a method to do that. But. So I think I think um, you also hit on something that um, made me made me think about Warcry. Um, they've been re- they've been introducing new war bands that you can add to Warcry as new factions have come out in Age of Sigmar. The problem is is the new war bands are quickly outpacing the old war bands <laughs> in terms of their ability to do things. Right? Yes, this is uh, and, so predictable. Yeah, and, they I, and all I mean do this. this happens. This, and they all do, and this happens in big war games too. But I think what happens though is that because the meta is generally smaller, I mean we're talking about scale size, right? Because there's fewer armies or war bands that you can have, there's you don't have the same kind of balance and maybe hard counters to certain lists that you would have to help balance the game. And there's so not much you creative freedom. Yeah, there's not as much creative freedom. So you may end up having a mechanic, and I'm thinking about one in particular with the with the Gloom Spike Gits in War in Warcry. They have an ability that you thought that your your Wog charge was pretty pretty awesome, mm-hmm. um, Dan. They have an ability that when they attack and they get a like the four quad thing, they get to add the value of that attack to each attack that they make in terms of damage. Jeez. So it could do easily, like if you get four sixes, they add 24 damage to their attacks. 
and it just like completely obliterates like big baddies, right? And that's just with one quad. So if you roll a natural triple, add your witch or add your uh, wild dice. There you go. My my point is is that you have one faction that has like one rule that is almost a negative play experience yeah. for anybody else on the table, and oh, yeah. um you know it it kind of it's easier to upset the balance I think in a skirmish game because everything's smaller. Yep. Yeah. You know, so you don't have the wide balancing act from many different armies and many different builds and a lot of variations that kind of keep everything in a sort of natural balance in a in a large war game meta that you do in a in a war, in a smaller skirmish game. And I, I game. think there's different economic pressures too. Like you have to remember that these these games don't just spring out of thin air and they're not created by uh, charities. They're created by bit companies that are out there to sell the next yeah. wave and i've missed yep. the last couple waves of x-wing because i just look at it and i'm not interested in it, it because it, it's it's not compelling content for me to want to go part with a 100 bucks to keep up with the latest and greatest right and what they used to do was if you didn't part with that 100 bucks you were not you were not on the bleeding edge you were not competitive because they would, they would, there was a way to break the game with every new wave. Yeah. Um, and and they and that was negative play experience. Because if you were on the crap end of that yep. stick, you were like, oh great, why am I wasting? Why did I blow a hundred dollars this this quarter on this game that I just lose at? Yeah. So it, I think all game experiences should be positive. They have to still create compelling content for you to want to plunk down some cash and get some new things on the table. Um, yeah. If they don't, then you know why are we bothering? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, we've kind of mentioned a couple of skirmish games um, off the top of my head. I, you know, we've mentioned Warcry. Dan, you've mentioned X Wing. Uh, Jason mentioned Infinity. Um, I know that there's other games out there like Frostgrave. Frostgrave is kind of an interesting game because it is um, model agnostic. Meaning that you've got rules and you've got um, mechanics and stuff, but you can bring any model to the table that you think would represent that unit or that model. So if I'm playing with a bunch of cultists, I could bring some D&D marauders if I wanted and say, here's my cultists. You know, So that's kind of an interesting thing. They, they make their money from their little PDF books that they sell for like 2 or $3 a pop for the little scenarios that you might play. And they've got little campaigns that you can play. It's so um, smart. So. Why would, why should they bother trying to print and market minis? You know what's funny, though, is they do. I've got a box of oh. their minis oh, good. that they do, but it's not dependent. I mean, that's not their main source of revenue, yeah. right? That's Games Workshop, the minis are the revenue. You yeah. know, it's yeah, not yeah. the, not the game, the game books aren't bringing stuff in. It's the, it's the mini. So, um, so there's Frostgrave, there's Malifaux. They've got some amazing models. Um, I wanted to love other... Malifaux so bad. Yeah. I want, well, I wanted it's... to fall in love. I'm like you, me, we're meant to be together. Then I played it and I'm like, nope, we're not meant to be. I'll just love you. <laughs> I will love you from afar. It was it, it hurt it hurt so bad. Um, Which edition was it? Uh, it was not the latest edition, but okay. It's a game. The randomization element is a customized fifty, you know, fifty-two card deck. Yep. Um, yep. So because you don't roll dice in it, right? You use you use, use a deck cards, of cards, and you get to put you got to put together your hand to power your minis. 
Yeah. And that's it's basically a fifty sided die. Okay. Yeah. Let's just let's just cut right to the to the chase. <laughs> so uh, okay, thanks. Uh, but I wanted to love it. I love the theme. I love the the models are so great, and there's so many unique characters, and there's yeah. just so many untold stories that could you know you could just look at the model and the goon and whoever you're looking at and go oh yeah there's a whole horror series about this one guy this would be so great but you know the the gameplay has to it has to stand up um yeah so yeah malifo um let's see oh i mean games workshop has a couple of mini i mean they have kill team Warcry we talked about they also have Necromunda and um, Age of Sigmar Underworlds, but I'm going to be uh, Jason, correct me if you think I'm wrong here, but that almost borders on a board game. It's almost like a board game slash skirmish game. Versus I've always just looked straight... at it and thought it was kind of a board game. Yeah, because you're actually using like tiles and tile sets mm-hmm. to move things around, you know, but... Uh, it's kind of one of those weird hybrids, I think. Yeah. Um, here's, but I here's definitely the difference more, between a board, board game, game and a skirmish game. I'm just going to tell you right now. We're going to settle this. Settle it, Dan. A board game is when someone brings a box and they open the box and there's enough pieces and game material for two or more people to play a game. A skirmish game is where you bring your pieces and the other guy brings his pieces. Or a war, a war game or a skirmish game. So a board game has to be totally self-contained, like Axis and Allies. Totally right. self-contained. Boom. Yeah. Mic drop, second time of the night. There you go. <laughs> Two mic drops. You had to pick up the Two. mic from the first time. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, wait, wait, wait. wait. I got one more. No. Yeah. Uh, Wings of Glory is another one that's a good, fun skirmish game. If you've ever played that, it's like a World War II uh, fighter fighter pilot oh, that's cool. uh, game. Yeah, it's That's good. another one that, that uses a card deck instead of a dice. You shuffle the damage deck and place it face down, and then whenever you shoot, you pull the damage card. And some of the cards are misses. Some of them are critical hits. There's always that one card, and there's immediate destruction. But, and, and that one is good because the maneuver you did last time affects your next maneuver, like yes. big t- for real, um, in ways that other games don't. So if you were, you know, inclining and losing out al- and gaining altitude and losing speed. There yep. will be things you will not be able to do your next turn, even though you want to, to win the game. That, and that was a cool mechanic about that game was the altitude mechanic. You'd actually pull your mini up and put it on a different altitude. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, let's see. There's Adeptus Titanicus, which is like all those little knight models. Is a skirmish game. Like between little knights. That's a Games Workshop one. Um, and they have the Adeptus Aeronauticus, I think, or something like that. It's their version of Wings of Glory. It's like a bunch of planes. Right, yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the, the, the night one seems kind of cool. You know, you get to paint up all these little mini knights. Oh, yeah. Uh, which which are like the giant ones, and then you kind of like just go fight each other, and it, it looked pretty cool. I, I, but, I have um, to admit, one of the things I really miss about Gen Con is going, walking through those larger yeah. halls and walking yep. from tabletop game to tabletop game to tabletop game and going, Oh man, look at that. That looks great. Look at those minis. They're the size of remote control cars. And there's just yeah. so, there's so many of them out there and the people who put them on a Gen Con have so much passion. And it's just part of the joy is the museum aspect of, of just, you can't play everything. The best you can do is mm-hmm. walk by and take a few pictures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, 
I will say this, skirmish games, I'm a big fan of them. I really like playing skirmish games. I think that it gives enough variety that replayability is up there quite a bit. You know, you can keep playing them over and over again and still have a great time. Uh, you know, change your opponent, change your list. Uh, there's a lot of variation you can do. And, uh, you know, if you don't have the time or effort to put into, you know, building a huge wargaming army, check out a skirmish game. You know, I, there's kill team stuff out there for 40K that are literally $50 to get into, and you're ready to go. And, and I think we talked about scale. Like, for instance, the barrier to entry for X-Wing is about like that for the core yeah. set. You're, you're, the core set is not enough to play. You're going to have to buy some kind of expansion. You're into it. 35 bucks to get a core set um and they've they're they're selling their stuff now where you can buy fact the two or three different faction packs you can buy the the rulers and the damage cards and the dice separately and you could totally skip the the core set that comes with one x-wing and two tie fighters if you if you hate the idea of of only of of owning those if you want to jump straight into one of the factions you can you can piece it together without buying stuff you're not going to use yeah but one one of the awesome. one of the reasons why I'm building this game table is to just to get back into X-wing. I made sure that one of the configurations will fit the 36 by 36 map and still have room there for you cards go. and stuff. I gave up on Armada for that. Uh, I have a dedicated Armada table that's four feet by six feet, even though I only need three by six for Armada. I did spend uh, two hundred dollars on a Super Star Destroyer that I look at every day when I come down into my home office. Um, one of the best miniatures ever, uh, pre-painted and sold, um, in a box ever, in my opinion, that's my opinion. So, um, I know your opinions are different, but I, I and another reason why you won't get a job with games workshop. Exactly. I'd be like, you're just an FFG shill. Shut up, man. As soon as they got bought out by Asmodee, I hated them, but I still give them money. <laughs> Awesome. Well, any any parting words of uh, wisdom from uh, you two? Mm. Uh, We've had a good discussion. It's a good discussion, and and like I said, I, I I would say if you have not gotten into one of these very addictive money absorbing games, do it. It's great. Um, <laughs> uh, there are good ones out there, and they are fun. Um, the most important thing is to find people to play with. It's less important to pick the the system yeah. or the models that you love because there's a lot of guys out there that own a lot of models and never do anything with them. So um, And that's a really good advice because if you you know you go to like miniature market and you say let's just find some really cool stuff that looks awesome and if you just want a hobby, if you just want to paint and model, then it, the world is open to you. But if you want to play games, you got to look at your local community and see what games are actually being played. Otherwise, yep. you'll get stuff and you'll you'll only play it once a year when you take it to a convention. And there's that two or three games that are being played. Yep. Very good. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for this discussion. What I hope that we will do in the future is maybe take a deep dive into some of these games and talk about why we love them. Uh, that means that we need to play some of these games, like maybe the new edition of Malifaux or Play Infinity or something like that, mm -hmm. um, and and try them out. And hey, we've got Tabletop Simulator for a reason, right? So yep. uh, you know, we can we can try maybe some of these out and give a report back. So um, hopefully, you, our audience, enjoyed this discussion. Um, Leave us some feedback. Give us a comment. Share, like, subscribe. Do all the things that you need to do to help us know that you still love us. So, 
I love. Thank you, you very much for. Thanks, Dan, and we love our audience too, right? <laughs> Thank you. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Have a good night, everybody. See ya. Later, Gator. <laughs>